Welcome to Musing the Mysteries, a podcast by Barney Wiggett. Let's go, let's go. Well, we're going through the uh, Epistle of James uh, with an emphasis on his uh, social justice theme, especially how he attacks classism in and through the church. And uh, I'm kind of saying about classism that it's, it's when those with less are seen and treated as less. So that's classism. And, and we see it in the church. And we not only see it among us, but we see it in the way that we, the church, uh, react and respond and interact with the world around us. And uh, I, I think that James had learned uh, from the Word of God in the Bible and the Word of God in his home, that is, you know, his half-brother Jesus, that God didn't create the world and put people on it for us to be all broken up into castes or classes. I mean, sure, some people have lots of stuff and other people don't have so much stuff. But classless, being classless, doesn't mean we're all supposed to have the same amounts of the world's goods, but we should be more equal socioeconomically than we are. But be that as it may, whatever our disparity between you know, the possessions of ours and others and the power that we have and others have, we can't ever use that disparity to harm one another or to take advantage of one another. God is very clear on that. And so should our consciences be, our Holy Spirit-imbued consciences. And so this is directly antithetical to what many believe is the Christian's right, uh, especially the American Christian's right. That is, the right to accumulate as much as we can with no regard for anybody that has less than that. And in full disclosure, I, I have to say, I believe this is the Western church's biggest mistake. I, I mean, everybody's going to have their opinion about that, I suppose, but I don't think it's Calvinism versus Arminianism, or I don't think it's even gay or straight or Catholic or Protestant. And and I, I think those are important issues, and I, I have biblically informed uh, opinions about those things. But, but I think it's our, our consumerism and our classism that wreaks more havoc in the church, not to mention our reputation with the world, than any of those other things. Uh, so, for, for time's sake, uh, we left off last time sort of abruptly at uh, Ch- James chapter 2, verse 8, but we have to go back and, and uh, at least, you know, to the beginning of the chapter and see if we can't kind of pick up where we left off. So, James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, must not show favoritism Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. And if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the the noble name of him to whom you belong? So, I mentioned last time how J- how James went from how we treat widows and orphans in the end of chapter 1 to how we treat the poor at the door of the church in the beginning of chapter 2. So in other words there's classism in the church lobby before you know before the rich guy and the poor guy even get past the ushers they're being treated uh differently. And so, in other words, you don't have to get very far into the into the church to see how Christians classify and segregate people into economic, ethnic, gender, and social classes. I mean, you you think it would go without saying that we should check our prejudices at the church door at the at the very least for at least an hour of worship, but it, but apparently it doesn't go without saying. And it really doesn't speak very well of us if we can't even treat people who aren't like us with dignity for one hour on Sunday mornings. Uh, James says that to exploit the poor is to first blaspheme God and is law-breaking. So let me pick it up at verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So people who don't love their neighbors as themselves and show favoritism, earlier James says they're blasphemers, and now he calls them lawbreakers, which both of them, I mean, that, that's pretty strong language. I mean, how does, he, how does he come to that conclusion? Breakers of what law? How, how are they lawbreakers? What law is he talking about? Well, from my vantage point, it's the whole law. I mean, remember Jesus said the whole law can be summarized in love God and love your neighbor. I mean, you miss that one and you miss it. That's the whole law. And so both Moses and Jesus taught it. More than that, they, they commanded it. And then, G, then James picks it up and gives... Uh, the law, uh, you know, this lofty title as the royal law, this particular law, this way of summarizing the law is what James says is the royal law. I mean, royal, how is it royal? Well, it's royal, I mean, because it comes from royalty, right? From from the king as a royal edict to his subjects. It's a law of royal proportions that we can't afford to to dismiss or to minimize, and this is James' way of saying the very same thing that, that his half-brother Jesus said, along with the command to love God. It's the greatest of the commands. Don't favor one neighbor above another. Love your neighbor. Don't play favorites. Don't think in terms of greater or lesser dignity among humans. Don't be a racist. Don't be a misogynist. Don't be a classist. Don't be condescending to people who have less money or less privilege or less power or less education. Don't create a false hierarchy of neighbors where one of your neighbors is more important than another neighbor. Love your neighbor. 
Remember, he's talking about the guy that comes into your church. Remember, the context here is the guy, that guy that comes into your church with unbrushed teeth, shabby clothes, body odor. Who is that guy? He's your neighbor. But see, a, a neighbor isn't just someone at the church door. Jesus said uh, that hated Samaritans offer, often make better neighbors than beloved saints. Remember in that parable of the Good Samaritan, that the, the guy that the Jews would have hated naturally, the Samaritan, he made a better neighbor than, than, the, uh, than the priest or the Levite. Um, see, the rich and the poor don't live in the same neighborhoods like, like, like the, the rich man and Lazarus in that parable in Luke 16, but they were neighbors. They didn't live in the same, on the same street. The, the Lazarus friends had to carry him to the rich man's gate, his gated community, his, his opulent place of residence. But see, neighbors, you know, they may well come from different neighborhoods, but they're still our neighbors and require the same respect that we give someone next door to us who has the same socioeconomic, same culture, the same values that we have. So this poor guy might be sleeping under a bridge, but he's your neighbor. And it, let me just refer you to my blog. Uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, Musing the Mysteries at WordPress.com. Uh, and the posts that I have called On Being Neighborly. I have, oh, five or six teachings on that. So you might take a look at that. But the point is that true Christianity is classless. There's, there's just no room in the church for law-breaking socioeconomic bigots. So getting back to the front door of the church uh, where James has us, uh, let me be clear. James, he has no beef with the rich guy. He doesn't, he's not rebuking the rich guy. It, the, the guy who comes to church wearing gold, he doesn't have a beef with that guy. His beef is with the ushers who wants some of that gold in their offering plate. I mean, it's entirely possible the rich guy might just be going to church, minding his own business when he gets preferential treatment. He may not demand it. But James' objection wasn't about his wealth or his wardrobe, but, but to the church leader or the church member who, hurt, who, who, who wanted some sort of socioeconomic benefit from the wealthy visitor. I mean, since he knew... He wasn't going to get anything from the, the dirty clothes guy. He treated, that usher treated uh, him differently than he did the rich guy. So remember, this socioeconomic bias, it, it exists not only in the church, but through the church to the larger world community. What I'm trying to say by, by that is it also has to do with how we treat our neighbors outside the church. It's not just how we treat our friends uh, that go to our, <laughs> our church. I mean, do we treat our global neighbors? And that's clearly what the Bible teaches about, about our neighbors is that it's everyone. Uh, so do we treat our global neighbors that come from the bad side of the track, so to speak, the same as those who come from the good side of the tracks? Or is there a bias? So we, we don't know if the two men in James' scenario here, the rich guy and the poor guy, we don't know if they were Christians. All we know is that they were 
they were coming to church. They were potential converts, maybe converts already, but at least potential converts, seekers. All we know is that one of them was a, a, a potential donor. And as such, he got the royal treatment and the other guy got the shaft because the, 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 the rich guy was, you know, he might have put some, dropped some of that gold in the offering plate. And, and granted, it might, it, maybe it wasn't the money that they wanted from the, their gold-studded visitor, but maybe it was the status of having him there. You know, some people act like having prosperous and powerful members in your church lends to the church's credibility. I've actually heard pastors brag about members of their churches who were movie stars or rock stars or famous athletes or, you know, as though that, you know, automatically makes the church better. It might make it richer, but not necessarily better. It can even make it worse if people's attention is on them instead of on the Lord, right? And, you know, and if they get special treatment, it's a church with lawbreakers in it, so that's, that's not a good sign. By the way, you know, if you can't imagine you or your church being crass enough to actually reserve the best seats for the rich, <clears throat> let me propose a parallel scenario in, in where this kind of socioeconomic discrimination does take place. A couple of them, actually. One would be, you know... Th- because I planted churches and pastored them, and I, I do can tend to gravitate to church planters, and I hear a lot of uh, strategizing among church planters. And, uh, and most commonly held strategy for church planters in America, at least that I've encountered, is to start the church among middle or upper class people. And then, you know, somewhere down the road, when the church gets financially stable, then start a benevolence ministry uh, as a committee or a program or a department in the church, right? And, uh, and that might not seem, you know, discriminatory to you at first, but, you know, ministry to the poor only comes after, you know, the women's and men's Bible studies are up and running, and the youth group has a pastor, and the church has a building of its own, and complete with a nursery and a Sunday school program, and that's after that they'll consider throwing a few crumbs at the poor in in drive-by missionary efforts you know it seems like mercy ministry is usually kind of an add-on uh if it even gets added on ever i mean doesn't that seem a little backwards to you since jesus taught that the poor are more naturally more receptive to the gospel you know that whole camel through the needle's eye thing I wonder if sometimes if we're more interested in the church's financial security than we are the salvation of souls. And of course, there are many, many, many exceptions to this rule. Like a church planting friend of mine here in San Francisco, Pastor CJ, he not only invites the poor, they not only invite the poor, but they target the poor and provide for the poor in their services, you know, with tarps and socks and dinner afterwards with the rest of the church at a pizza parlor. They don't just hand out the food. They go together. They eat together. They hang out together. It's a mutual thing. And I have another pastor friend who had so many, has had so many homeless folks come into their services with 
with their service dogs and cats in tow. A lot of homeless people do have pets, by the way, at least in San Francisco. So this church, they, you know, they found a way to provide a place for the, the pets on the church property. You know, there's another kind of like spot so that pets can all be there because of people with allergies in the church service. So why not? I mean, we have nurseries for babies and classrooms for toddlers. Why not a place for people's pets who don't have another place of their own to leave them? I mean, that's prioritizing. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, I'll give you another example. The, the American church displays, I think, another form of it's, it's more subtle, but a, a subtle form of favoritism when, when the neighbor, neighborhood around the church building changes. It, 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 it transforms over time from upper to middle to lower class residents. The old, you know, there goes the neighborhood sort of thing. And the church, rather than identifying uh, it is a you know a God given opportunity and and then strategizing how they might reach and disciple their new neighbors, which are usually what P- people of color, people of different cultures. What they do is they sell the church property and move away. They distance themselves from the others who wouldn't be able to provide the church's financial base. And from where I stand, that's a form that's a form of classism. So. The rich, the poor, the black, the white, the educated, the uneducated, we're all neighbors. And if we favor one above the other, we're breakers of God's royal law. It's like the, the racist land, landlorder who, who rents, did I say landlorder? <laughs> the racist landlord who rents only to, to whites, he, he's a lawbreaker. Why? Because whether or not they're, they're allowed to actually move into the neighborhood, those are people that are still their neighbors. And uh, that landlord might not want them as neighbors, but what he doesn't realize is, is that they already are. And, and please don't get me started about certain Christians, I put in quotes, who, who would reject all undesirables from entering our national neighborhood. You know, impoverished by the misfortune of being born in the wrong country, to the wrong family, at the wrong time in history. You know, it's obviously their own fault. This is my neighborhood, not yours. You're not welcome here. Go home. They're the wrong color, speak the wrong languages, uh, have the strange customs, believe in the wrong religion, and they threaten our, you know, cozy American way of life. And so, so rather than see this as a divinely orchestrated opportunity to reach people with the gospel that we wouldn't have other, otherwise have had access to, they would rather just keep them off our shores altogether out of fear, out of greed. I know this is politically controversial and it's complicated. I know that this argument is nuanced, but there's an obvious classism going on in the background of this, of a fearful and, and greedy, severe form of nationalism that the church has to resist. And, and I, again, I would refer you to my blog. Uh, I have a number of uh, blogs on, on immigration and, uh, and such on that topic in my uh, Musing the Mysteries at uh, .wordpress.com. 
Well, my rant on that notwithstanding, James James wasn't talking about Im- immigration per se, but but he's he's talking about the kind of cold-hearted discrimination that goes on uh, in and through our churches, and and I think it, it applies to to issues that I've already brought up. The rich man gets a front row seat while the indigent person has to sit on the floor. The poor man, you know, he he's, he's he might be dirty. He might just, you know, we just cleaned our pews, and and he might just scare, you know, our middle class guests off from returning because, you know, he smells bad, it makes him feel uncomfortable. Plus, maybe if we treat that guy harshly, maybe he won't come back and put us in this, you know, uncomfortable situation again. He's never going to be a big tither. He's never probably going to be an usher or a Sunday school teacher. So let's not waste any time or energy on that guy. Let him go to a church in his own neighborhood where there are more people like him. I, I, I'm, I'm putting words in people's mouths, I know, and, and I don't want to just create a straw man here and, and burn him down. But I'm just saying, I think there's some, some things that James has to say to us about this. Anyway, let me read on, starting with verse 10 now. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you don't commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So it's pretty clear, isn't it, that James is still talking about the clash between Christianity and classism? I mean, he didn't change the subject uh, about living Christ-like into some generic sense. I mean, though it, it, it certainly applies generically. Everything that James is saying applies generically to sanctification issues and being like Jesus. But he's still talking about the law breaking that we do when we're not merciful. He says, anyone who has not been merciful will be judged. I'm saying that he's not talking in the abstract about sin here or referring to law-breaking in the hypothetical. He's still commanding us to treat everyone equally as neighbors. And the word that he uses to describe the spirit of the classless Christian is mercy. And... uh, Some refer to loving the poor and disadvantaged as mercy ministry. Okay, that's fine. As long as we don't relegate this mercy to some sort of extra credit uh, Christianity. Being, in other words, being merciful to the least, the last, the lost. It's a fundamental, it's fundamental to the faith. And it's, you can't confine it to the deacon board or uh, a committee or a specially gifted or called church department. The prophet Micah asked and answered the question about the basics of what you know God requires. He says, what does the Lord require of you? And he answers his question, but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So then James comes back and he says, he calls this law, this law uh, that he's talking about not being lawbreakers and this law of mercy and this law of generosity and this law of classlessness, the law that gives freedom. And it's, it's the second time he says this. And earlier in chapter one, he uses the same terminology, the law that gives freedom. 
And of course, in a general way, all of God's laws are freeing rather than incarcerating. Um, you know, doing what God says is the only way to be totally free. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And obeying his laws is the only way to be totally free. It, it, I know it's, in, it's counterintuitive, but it's true. But as I've been indicating, James isn't speaking in just general terms here for the most part. And though it's true in general that all of God's laws set us free, James, I, I'm sure, is talking specifically about this royal law of loving our neighbor and showing no partiality to our rich neighbor. And, and if we'll obey that law and treat everyone equally as a neighbor, then, then we'll be free. Uh, you know, justice and classlessness, they, they engender freedom. You know, I want to remind you, I want to back up and remind you that classlessness that James prescribes is nothing like communism. In case you haven't heard me say this, or you haven't heard the earlier uh, episodes or, or forgot that I said this, we're not talking about socialism or communism. Communistic classlessness isn't freedom at all. It, it, it's repression and servitude to the will of the leader of the party. Communism, it, 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 sets, it sets up class warfare, you know, where the lower classes have to fight for equality. And there's a war in Christianity, but it's not between people. Our war is a war between our own sin nature and the divine nature inside us, and between us and the devil. But it's not a war between the haves and the have-nots, because whether we know it or not, we're all on the same, we're all on the same side. So classless Christianity uh, follows the perfect law that gives freedom. It's not communistic. It's not socialistic. Notice James says, speak and act as those that will be judged by that law. Uh, so in other words, classlessness is both in how we speak and how we act. And the classist Christians, uh, uh, Christian speech will usually give them up, right? In other words, the, we, can, it, we, we have to not only act this way, but also speak this way. You know, a pastor acquaintance of mine told a story about a woman who came into the church lobby, and, and she was speaking to some friends before the service, and she said, you know, I just saw a bumper sticker on a car in the church parking lot that promoted the candidate from the other party, that the other, the other uh, political party, the other party, as though they were some monolithically voting block, you know, in their church and all Christians, you know, vote a certain way. And uh, she said, it's great that we have some unbelievers here today in the service, meaning it had to be if they're from the other party, they had to be an unbeliever. And one of the people standing in that circle, one of her own peers standing there, admitted that it was his car. And uh, so that put her in a, a bind, you know. But her words divulged a prejudice, a classism between political parties in that particular case. So James says we have to speak and act, not to be politically correct, but for our hearts out of the... Uh, the, uh, out of the heart, the recesses of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. So anyway, it's how we speak and act. And then James goes on in verse 14 to say, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? 
can that kind of faith, such faith, save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it isn't accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Well, uh, of course, this is the most well-known passage in, in the James letter. And most commentators, most preachers will cite these verses as James' primary theme. You know, faith without works is dead. And frankly, I don't doubt that. I, but it begs the question, what kind of works are we talking about? Faith without works is dead, but what kind of works are we talking about here? And again, I'll say, of course it applies to good works of all kinds. But the ones he's just been talking about and the ones he mentions in the very next breath are deeds that, the the kind of deeds that James has on his mind. Taking care of the poor, providing food and clothes for the poor, meeting the physical needs of those without. Um, Earlier, in one of the earlier episodes, I mentioned my 10-second test where I asked Christians to list in 10 seconds the kinds of works that show real faith, real genuine uh, faith in Christ. And most of them, you know, don't have social justice or care for the poor and vulnerable high on their list, if they include them at all. And even if they do have these things on their good works list, a large percentage of them don't actually do those kinds of good works. They just think they should be done. And, and I'm sure that they do other good deeds, and they show the genuineness of their faith in other ways, but somehow many Christians have managed to retain a sort of self-serving spirituality and a bigoted view of people of other cultures or of other uh, uh, lower than them on the socioeconomic scale. Uh, but James seems to have included classlessness and generosity on the top of his list. I mean, that just keeps coming up over and over and over in his letter. And that's why I'm saying this is really the theme of his letter. So virtually every time he goes to speak of how Christians should speak and act, he goes right back to a direct or indirect reference to caring for the poor, treating everyone the way that they want to be treated, that they would themselves want to be treated. And this is his main example of the evidence of saving faith. It's, it's like in Galatians 2.10, Paul uh, said that the original apostles, when, when they were vetting him for the apostle job, he said that they didn't add anything to his message. In other words, they were completely content with his gospel. But he said, the only thing they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing he says that I had been eager to do all along. And so isn't that interesting that the one thing that they singled out, the only thing they mentioned, it was, it, it was so important to them that the only thing they wanted to make sure, okay, we've got your gospel straight, but is be sure to remember the poor. If we're going to send you out, that's, that's an important apostolic trait. And, and so, you know, I think they said, remember the poor, partially because the poor are pretty easy to forget. They're pretty easy to overlook. You know, to the, to the rich or middle class, the poor can, 
can be invisible, especially if we stay in our own socioeconomic circles all the time and never venture to the bad side of town. Uh, we'll never encounter the poor. Derek Engdahl said, it, if we only interact with middle-class Americans, we can deceive ourselves into believing that most of the world lives that way. Relating only to people of similar socioeconomic status affirms our lifestyle choices and dulls us to the gospel's challenge to beware the dangers of wealth, unquote. I mean, it, it might not be an issue of lack of proximity to the poor, but it might just be a choice to look the other way and avert our eyes when we're around the poor. You know, whether it's because they make us feel uncomfortable or embarrassed or make us feel guilty, a lot of us just simply, we just cross the street and walk down the other side when we're, you know, accosted by or at least confronted with the sight of a homeless person. Does that sound familiar? Walking down the other side of the street. And notice back to this Galatians 2, Paul, he said he was eager to care. He, he said, I, I'm, we were, were eager to care for the poor. He didn't just tolerate the poor. He wasn't reluctant to, to, to minister to the poor or do it out of some sort of duty or drudgery. He was eager to continue caring for the poor. Well, back to James. The next portion of, the, of James' letter is the, is the part that always comes up when we're talking about works versus faith for salvation. And let, let me read this in verse 20. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac at the altar? Do you see that his faith and his actions were working together and that his faith was made complete by what he did? And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So to James, this kind of faith is an empty shell faith. It's not real faith. And so James and, uh, and Paul are not mutually exclusive. And when Paul says we're saved by grace and not by works, he's referring to the thing that saves us. That is Jesus dying on the cross in our place and our putting our trust and confidence in the, his sacrifice. James, on the other hand, when, when he says we're saved by works and not faith, he's referring to the proof that we're actually saved, that the proof of actual saving faith which is the fruit. Good works don't save us, but they're the evidence that we are. And, and that's as much as I'll say about that, because you can read any number of commentaries and listen to any number of messages on that and study that for yourself about the apparent contradiction between Paul and James. But in light of this, I wonder how many supposed believers in Jesus have that sort of empty shell faith that James is talking about. Because he refers to it not just in relationship to uh, those two Old Testament characters, Abraham and, and Rahab, but he, if we back up and, and then go beyond, uh, you know, in the rest of the epistle, he's referring to the kind of faith that, that makes, uh, that, that doesn't 
separate us, doesn't classify people, uh, haves and have-nots. And uh, I just wonder how many supposed believers in Jesus have an empty shell faith. They're, cave, they're careful to pay their tithes and pay their taxes and not cheat on their spouses. They're careful to bring their children up, go into Sunday school. But they're bigots. <laughs> they're classists. Their, their world, worldview puts the underclass under them. And they see and treat people with less as less. That's a classist. They're, they're, they're looking through the wrong end of a telescope at the rest of the world. Everyone that isn't them seems small, far away, unworthy of consideration. And, and because they're better off than others, they consider themselves better than others. Well, we got to stop now, and let me just conclude again with this Franciscan benediction that I've used before. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain to joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all our children and to the poor. Amen. Let's go. Let's go.